I'm Chris Kresser, and this is Revolution Health Radio. Hey everybody, it's Chris Kresser. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I have a special guest, Dr. Amy Nett, who works with me at California Center for Functional Medicine and is also on the Kresser Institute faculty and helps me teach the ADAPT practitioner training program. And Amy, how long have you been with us now at CCFM? I don't remember the exact month that you joined. I think you and I started working together even before CCFM was officially in existence. So over three years now, I think. Wow. Time flies. I mean, (laughs) in a way, it seems like you've been there forever. And, you know, it's uh, it's amazing how far we've come in that in that last three years, like tripled in size, I think, in, in three years in terms of staff and growth. Absolutely. And then watching the clinician training program, um, watching you develop that from the ground up and seeing that grow has been really exciting too. So you've, you've been busy. Definitely. We've all been busy. It's <laughs> been fun, a, a great ride. And before we dive into today's topic, which is I'm really excited about, uh, we're going to talk about PCOS. And you pointed out to me that I really haven't written or that much about this topic or spoken about it, which surprised me because it's such a big concern, you know, for women and it's something that I, in my mind, I thought I had covered, but I hadn't. So we're going to dive in to that today. But before we do that, given that it's been three years now, and so now you have a lot more experience in functional medicine, you're helping me teach in the Kresser Institute, but you didn't come from a functional medicine background. You came from uh, radiology and practicing within the conventional system. So I'm sure some of the listeners, particularly practitioners, would be curious how that transition has been for you now looking back, you know, to where you were five years ago and where you are now and, and you know, what that's been like for you both professionally and personally. Yeah. As, as you said, I, I've trained in a very conventional medical setting, um, Georgetown University Medical School and then Stanford University for radiology, both residency and then also fellowship in, in diagnostic radiology. And, you know, we talked about last time I was on the podcast, I think, or the first time I was on the podcast quite a few years ago that, you know, it really, it didn't align with, with my values. And it also didn't work for me when I was having my own health issues. So being able to work in the functional medicine setting, I think all of us thrive a lot more when our work is actually in alignment with our own values and and beliefs. And it's great to be able to work with something that I'm passionate about and being able to share these things with patients and, and learn from my patients. I mean, you know, a lot of our patients are so educated and well-read mm-hmm. and they're sifting through things that, you know, I love it when patients bring something new to us that we get to, to dive into and, and learn about. So. Absolutely. I've always said my patients are my greatest teachers and, yes. you know, as long as we're open to that being the case, uh, I mean, it's always blown me away that the attitude of some, some physicians and clinicians is, is, you know, like we've both had the experience of patients coming and telling us that they've been excited about something and gone to their doctor only to see the eye roll or the shaking of the head, you know, or stop doing Google research. And, you know, to some extent I get that, but as a practitioner myself, 
I get really excited when I hear about something I didn't already know about because, you know, functional medicine is extremely effective and powerful, but with the complexity of patients that we see, I'm eager to learn any, about any new thing that could help that I possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And there's, you know, again, having come from a more conventional background, I was used to this approach of using medications and and looking for really clear treatments. And then from you, I learned more about herbal approaches. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we have these really sensitive patients and we're realizing that we need to find different ways to to work with symptoms, that it's not just supplements and medications, that it can be, you know, you and I have both gotten into this, you know, DNRS program, mm-hmm. like limbic system healing. I mean, these yeah. are things that I wouldn't have considered five <laughs> years ago. It wasn't part of your, res- your radiology residency <laughs> at Stanford, was it? No, I, I think that would have gotten some eye rolling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, there's actually, maybe not directly with you know this particular methodology, but there's tons of research showing how mindfulness based stress reduction or mindfulness in general can can benefit all kinds of conditions. And when we understand basic physiology of the nervous system and how the nervous, you know, the, the psychoneuroendocrine system or immune, psychoneuroendoimmunology <laughs> is what they call it. It's like, basically that term is trying to say it's all connected, you know, like the nervous system is such plays such a huge role in every aspect of health and if we're like running around with like a chicken with our head cut off all day it's not just going to affect our our brain and our nervous system it's going to affect every aspect of our our health and well-being and certainly the the more experienced i get as a practitioner the the more i keep coming back to the to the basics it's easy to forget that you know we have all these powerful functional medicine tests and tools it's easy to go down those rabbit holes and and not pay enough enough attention to the basics yeah absolutely and you know for better or worse the body is so interconnected and once one system gets out of balance the the rest will fall yeah absolutely so this is probably a good segue into the topic because you know PCOS is a multi-system illness and uh, stress certainly plays a role. I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit about that, but why don't, why don't we just begin with the basics? Cause I think there's some misunderstanding about PCOS and let's just, you know, start with what it is, um, what defines it, what we know and don't know about it and go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And there's still a lot we, we don't know about it. PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome basically is a metabolic disorder with hormonal imbalances. It's, it's actually the most common form of hormonal imbalance. We would also call this an endocrine disorder, endocrine just referring to hormones. So an endocrine disorder, the most common one in women of reproductive age, probably affecting somewhere between about five to 15% of women. There's some controversy around the diagnostic criteria. There are different ways to make the diagnosis. So I think that's one of the reasons we don't have a a clear idea on exactly how many women this is affecting. Mm -hmm. The main hormone disruption that we're seeing in PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome is higher than normal levels of androgens In women, androgens, you can think of as, you know, the quote, male hormones. These are things like testosterone, DHEA, and these hormones are responsible for 
giving some of the the male characteristics. And as women, we normally have these these hormones, but in PCOS, we tend to see higher levels of the androgens. Mm-hmm. So we, it's probably good to work to just to jump in here. Like a, a sy- the, the syndrome, it's interesting about syndromes like irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia syndrome and premenstrual tension syndrome, they're different than diseases, which tend to have either, you know, clearly defined etiology or a single known cause or or pathological mechanisms we understand. Whereas with something like PCOS or any of those other syndromes, it's more like a description of a clinical picture, right? Signs and symptoms that are common. So we can actually group them together and see it, but we don't really know what necessarily what the driving mechanisms are. We have ideas, but we're not sure. Yeah, absolutely. And the research is suggesting that there's probably a lot of different factors that go into polycystic ovary syndrome. Some of it is going to be a genetic predisposition. Some is going to be environmental. And then diet and lifestyle may affect how the syndrome, like you said, the signs and the symptoms actually manifest. Right. So they've got higher levels of androgens. Yeah. And then, of course, insulin and blood sugar. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So similarly, again, we're seeing this is a a metabolic disorder. So we're seeing higher than normal levels of insulin. And this often goes along with insulin resistance. And so when you have insulin resistance, which is common in diabetics, so we're normally talking about insulin resistance on the pathway of developing type 2 diabetes or in the setting of diabetes. So we're also going to see high blood sugar in the setting Mm -hmm. of insulin resistance. But the most common thing that normally brings this to our attention is actually absent or infrequent periods, again, due to the hormonal imbalances we're seeing. Mm-hmm. That's a, a common complaint amongst women that I see and I know you see in your practice. And certainly stress seems to play a, a pretty big role there. Women who are not eating enough calories to support their activity level or burning the candle at, at both ends. And... I, I completely agree with you that this is probably a, a complex multifactorial syndrome that actually has you know different etiologies in different patients depending on their unique blueprint. Yeah, which makes it a little bit more difficult to to diagnose and treat. But yeah. certainly, whenever whenever I have a you know woman coming in with either what we call amenorrhea, so not having menstrual cycles, or oligoamenorrhea, where you have infrequent menstrual cycles, I think this is something that you know we want to consider. Um, the other the other way this can present is infertility or even subfertility. So just yeah. a difficult time trying to conceive. Yeah. And then skin problems, very common, often connected to the androgens or other hormonal imbalance, of course, and excess hair growth or even the opposite, hair falling out, alopecia, which can also be a consequence of excess estrogen or androgens. Right. So here's, here's a key difference between functional and conventional medicine approach here with a, with a syndrome like this. And we can use IBS as an analog. So irritable bowel syndrome in conventional medicine, you go to the doctor, you get this, you describe your symptoms. They in turn give you a diagnosis that essentially summarizes your symptoms. You know, your, your bowel is irritable, irritable bowel syndrome. And then the, the treatments are basically all uh, oriented around the, managing the symptoms. So if there is pain, you might have an analgesic. If there is 
you know, constipation, you might get a pro-motility drug. If there's diarrhea, you might, you might get a, an anti-diarrheal. And, and that's the basic approach. But in functional medicine, we're, that's obviously not what we're doing. We're trying to address the root causes and the underlying mechanisms that contribute. So you know, talk about that in the context of PCOS. Like, What is the best way of addressing this or even thinking uh- about it? Yeah, in terms of, so, I mean, we need to think about then, so how is the diagnosis made? Because, you know, you've just listed quite a few symptoms. And then the thing that you and I haven't even mentioned yet is polycystic ovaries, Mm -hmm. which is actually the name of the condition. And that part's a little bit confusing because I've actually had patients come into my office and say, oh, I have PCOS. And, you know, I say, okay, how, how is that diagnosis made? And they say, well, an ultrasound, you know, um, because initially one of the common features in, in polycystic ovary syndrome was an appearance of polycystic ovaries. Technically they, they aren't actually ovarian cysts. They're actually follicles that we're seeing and, and they have a very, classic appearance in the setting of typical PCOS, but that actually isn't even used as a diagnostic criteria. But it's something worth mentioning because that's where the name comes from, you know, polycystic ovary syndrome. But basically, you know, clinically, I'm going to be using all of the information that that you and I just mentioned. So I'm going to be looking for absent menstrual periods, maybe that excess facial hair growth you mentioned, or hirsutism, um, thinning of hair on the scalp and along the the temples, um, maybe obesity, insulin resistance. And then I'm going to to want to measure the androgen level, those sex hormone levels of testosterone, DHEA, And I I sometimes will look at the appearance of the ovaries, but, you know, the most classic criteria is really just are there high androgens and is there absent periods or at least what we call anovulatory periods. So you're, you might have bleeding, but it's not ovulating or producing an egg, which would allow for pregnancy, which is where we see that fertility issue coming up. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think the key thing to point out here is when we're looking at this functionally, we're not just thinking about how we're going to deal with the symptoms. We're actually trying to identify what the mechanisms are, which is what you were speaking to, and then address those mechanisms because we know that over, you know, that's, that's the only chance we have at actually reversing the condition rather than just helping somebody to live with it, which, you know, both of those goals are sometimes are necessary, but there, it's just a different approach to uh, how we're going to get to that goal. You know, in other words, are we going to help people live with the symptoms by addressing the causes or by, by just suppressing the symptoms? Right. So, you know, you, you and I are both going to use that standard functional medicine approach where someone comes, they're, they're complaining of any of these symptoms that we just mentioned. Um, we think about PCOS as a diagnosis. And then the question is, what are causing some of these imbalances? And you and I are probably going to have patients coming to us already on a paleo diet, you know, grain-free, maybe dairy-free diet. And there's some interesting research at, at UCSF that's ongoing. There was a study that started in 2015. I think it'll expected completion is in 2020, where they're looking at a paleo diet as a treatment approach for women with PCOS. So certainly once we have someone on a paleo diet, once that piece is handled, 
we're still going to want to look at a really comprehensive blood panel. I'm going to want to look at some nutrient levels on that, including vitamin D, uh, B vitamins. I'm going to want to look at thyroid function on a comprehensive blood panel. And then we'll also do gastrointestinal testing. So that's going to be stool testing, SIBO breath testing. I might also consider heavy metal testing and also non-heavy metal toxic burden testing, looking mm -hmm. for toxins that might come from, you know, plastics manufacturing or from petrochemicals, these, these toxins in the environment that are fairly ubiquitous and we're exposed to on a daily basis because some of these toxins, heavy metals included, are endocrine disruptors or, or hormone disruptors. Absolutely. And unfortunately, they're, they're ubiquitous in the environment. And I think they, we already have a lot of research suggesting harm, but I think that's only going to increase as we gain more understanding because we've already learned that some of our concepts for how toxicity works were are really outdated. And we, we know, for example, that a low dose of a toxin can have a completely different effect than a higher dose of that toxin. And that explains why uh, the low dose effects of toxins were missed in, for, in studies for so long, because they were just looking for the same type of effects that happened at the high dose, and they weren't seeing those. So they assumed that the low dose was safe. But now we know that the low dose can cause completely different and sometimes even opposite effects. So they've gone back and started studying these toxins again at lower doses, and they're finding that things like BPA, for example, can cause a lot of harm, even at, at you know lower doses than most of us are are exposed to. So uh, I think that's going to be a bigger part of the story as we go forward. Let's talk a little bit about thyroid function and cortisol. We, you know, we started by saying that we've we've both come to realize that nervous regulating the nervous system is really crucial, and uh, not surprisingly, it plays a role here. Yeah, and and you've talked a lot on prior podcasts and also written on the blog a lot about the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Mm -hmm. And as we said at the beginning, you know, sort of for better or worse, the body's incredibly complicated. So the HPA axis could actually more thoroughly be thought of as the HPTAG axis. So that's the yeah. hy hypothalamic pituitary thyroid, adrenal, gonadal, in this case, ovarian, access. But so the thyroid, the adrenals, and the ovaries all have this sort of interconnectedness or communication. I, I don't know of any strong evidence showing that thyroid or adrenal dysfunction directly causes PCOS. But, you know, I've seen so many times that correcting thyroid and adrenal issues improves menstrual cycles and improves those symptoms that are otherwise consistent with PCOS. Right. And we have tons of research connecting high and dysregulated cortisol with insulin, insulin resistance. Uh, we know that high cortisol causes all kinds of uh, cellular resistance, including to, to hormone, thyroid hormone. We know mm -hmm. that, you know, a disrupted HPA axis can reduce signaling across the board for all the different hormones. So it's, it, to me, I mean, this is one of the interesting things I think about functional medicine research is, is we often hear claims like, oh, there's no research to support functional medicine. Well, <laughs> you can't really do research on functional medicine per se. Functional medicine is just a way of looking at things. It's a, it's a you know, systems approach. And so if we say, 
a primary tenet of functional medicine is that we look for the root causes and underlying mechanisms of disease. Then, then you go into the scientific literature and you say, okay, is there any, is there any research that links HPA axis dysfunction to any of the mechanisms that we suspect cause PCOS? And then when you do that, sure, there's a ton of research. So it's, it's interesting to me, like how we have to, it's such a paradigm shift, you know, we have to like be continually revising our way of talking about it. And you know this, and I know this, but I think a lot of people who are, you know, look, looking at functional medicine from the outside have, and who haven't really embraced that paradigm don't, you know, they don't think about it that way yet. Yeah, it's, it's true. And I think the other thing, you know, from what you're saying in terms of these, these connections, the other thing is I would be reluctant to make a firm diagnosis of PCOS if there is thyroid or adrenal dysfunction, right. that I would want to correct those before sort of coming down on that diagnosis. Right. Especially because it's kind of like most syndromes, it's, it's in some ways a diagnosis of exclusion. You're eliminating other things that could explain those, you know, more straightforward diseases or pathologies that, that are more clearly defined. And if you can't do that, then the signs and symptoms left over fall into that bucket of PCOS. So I, I guess that leads to the next question, which is how, how useful is the diagnosis of PCOS, especially if, from a functional medicine perspective? I mean, in the conventional model, and not to sound like too much of a cynic here, but in, in some cases, the usefulness of a diagnosis is primarily re related to the, the drug company making more money selling drugs for that condition, right? And, and we know that you know, like in the case of Viagra and erectile dysfunction, like an advertising agency made up erectile dysfunction or ED as a condition, as a way of selling more Viagra, which was an accident. You know, Viagra was discovered during the development of a different drug and, and, and they just happened to notice that, that it was having this other effect. And then they created this whole uh, syndrome called erectile dysfunction to drive selling that, that, that drug. But in functional medicine, that's not how we approach things. So is, is PCOS even useful from a functional perspective? You know, I don't, I actually don't really find it all that useful of a term. Mm -hmm. um, I find the individual components are helpful in the sense that if there's insulin resistance, I want to identify that and correct it. If there's right. an, an ovulation, I want to identify what's causing the hormonal imbalance. But no, I, I don't really think that PCOS is a particularly helpful term in the functional medicine setting. And in, this is in part because, as you said, it's a syndrome. It's a collection of, of signs and symptoms that we put together in a pattern and then put a label on. But there's such a wide spectrum of how women actually present, how this manifests and the causes. So I'm treating each of my, quote, PCOS patients differently and based on their individual physiology. Right. You know, it might be useful in the sense that like, someone who has it can say, come in and say to you or me, I've got PCOS or I've been diagnosed with PCOS and then you and I immediately have a sense of what they're dealing with, you know? Um, yes. so it sh maybe shortens the conversation a little bit, but I, yeah, I agree. It's not necessarily useful outside of that context. Nevertheless, let's talk about how it is diagnosed just, just so that people understand, you know, what, what defines the syndrome from a conventional perspective? What are the, the, the three, I think there are three criteria that, that have to be satisfied. 
Well, yeah, in the medical literature, there are a few few different criteria and a few different ways that PCOS is defined. There's not a, a uniform agreed upon diagnosis. But I think the most common combination is having, number one, high androgens. So again, those sex hormones like testosterone, DHEA. Number two would be anovulation or absent ovulation. And again, this is why we tend to see irregular menstrual cycles. And I want to quickly add here that, you know, a normal menstrual cycle can actually be anywhere from about 21 to 35 days. I have a lot of women who come in and say, yeah, I have irregular cycles. They're, you know, 24 to 30 days. That's mm -hmm. complete, completely normal. Most of us are not clockwork 28 days. It's only about 10 to 15% of women who really have that clockwork 28 day cycle. Mm -hmm. So, I'm looking most often for cycles that are longer than 35 days. And then the third criteria that, again, isn't necessary to make a diagnosis, but is having a polycystic ovary appearance on ultrasound imaging. But again, I don't find this the most useful. And again, partly some women who have polycystic ovaries actually don't have any of these other symptoms. And this is why we think, well, maybe there's a genetic or epigenetic predisposition towards PCOS. And these women who have a polycystic ovary appearance, but don't otherwise have manifestations of this syndrome are just managing this with diet and lifestyle. Right. So, you know, when we think about diagnosis, all the caveats we've already discussed um, included, what else do we want to consider and look at, given that we know what these various mechanisms are that are involved? What else are you looking at in patients in you know, from a testing perspective? One of the most important things I'm going to be looking at is the blood sugar markers. So I'm going to be looking at insulin resistance. So I want a blood panel that's going to include glucose, hemoglobin A1C, a fasting insulin level. I might look at fructosamine level also. And then because PCOS and insulin resistance can also be associated with metabolic syndrome, which can be associated with high cholesterol and increased cardiovascular disease risk, I'm also going to want to check at least a basic lipid or cholesterol profile on my patients. And then we may or may not get into some of those more advanced cardiovascular disease markers like LDL particle number and yeah. Yeah. All of that. And then yep. of all of the, the basic tests that we run on pretty much every patient that comes through the door. All of the GI testing, the blood panels, nutrients, and then maybe heavy metals and other toxins, depending on their exposure. Right. So let's talk a little bit about treatment. Obviously, this will depend. I mean, this is another big difference in of conventional and functional medicine. In conventional medicine, usually the, the treatment is focused on the disease. So uh, different patients with the same disease will get the same treatment. Whereas in functional medicine, we treat the patient rather than the disease. And I think PCOS is a fantastic example of why that's necessary. So why don't you say a little bit more about that in that context? Yeah, well, I, this is a little bit painful because unfortunately, most women with irregular periods who go in to see their conventional Western medical doctor are probably going to be given an oral contraceptive pill to, mm. to quote, to quote, normalize her cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, we could talk, we could have a whole separate podcast mm -hmm. on, 
yeah. on oral contraceptive pills. The bottom line here, I, I'm not a fan. I wouldn't recommend these. Um, oral contraceptives don't address any of the underlying causes associated with PCOS, um, yeah. or lo lower the risks that are associated with PCOS, like the blood sugar imbalance or the decreased fertility. It's true that oral contraceptive pills do cause regular vaginal bleeding, but it's really important to know that that's not a period. It's just bleeding that's induced by the combination of estrogen and synthetic progestin in the pill. Yeah. So we'll, we'll leave that for another day, but oral contraceptive pills are used in conventional medicine really to mask or hide the symptoms of PCOS. So that's, that's your conventional treatment. But from a functional medicine perspective, we're going to want to come back to all of the test results that, that we just talked about running. So the gut testing, the comprehensive blood panel, the, you know, heavy metal burden, the non-heavy metal toxic burden, because we want to look at anything that could be contributing to hormonal disruption, immune imbalance, chronic inflammation. Right. So for one woman, it might be primarily an issue of insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. And so for her, the treatment might be a you know, low-carb or ketogenic type of diet and intermittent fasting and uh, other interventions to regulate blood sugar. Whereas for somebody else, if, they, if you do some testing and you find, wow, you've got SIBO and you've also got pretty significant mercury toxicity complicated by high levels of arsenic and lead, then maybe those are going to be the primary focus to begin with. Yeah, so we're going to use all of those tests we did to try to tailor tailor the treatment approach to to each patient. It's going to look a little bit different. I mean, there are some basic nutrients that we'll want to think about in terms of supporting just regular menstrual cycle, some that can be a little bit more targeted to PCOS, but diet and exercise are just top of the list in in addressing these symptoms. Cool. So let's let's talk a little bit more about the the whole spectrum of treatment options, you know, if we were to rank them in terms of importance, what would you say is at the top of your list and, and, you know, go from there. So I'm going to stick with diet and exercise as the two most important pieces in terms of addressing PCOS. Jeez, oh, Amy, that's so boring. <laughs> I know it Can't is be more original. <laughs> Always so back to the basics, isn't it? <laughs> It, it is always back to the basics. And it sounds like you, you know, you tend to go also towards like a lower carbohydrate and sometimes ketogenic diet with women. It depends. It depends on the situation. If a woman is obese and severely insulin resistant, but and her HPA axis is in good, pretty good shape, then yes. But if she is not, you know, significantly overweight and there's not a lot of metabolic dysfunction and she's burning the candle at both ends and working and has young kids at home and is doing, you know, CrossFit and what, you know, circadian disruption. Yeah. I'm not going to do that because I, I don't generally, it doesn't go well in that. So it's super, super individualized at that point. Yeah, I, I agree. For PCOS, I'm probably going to go either, you know, moderate carb or maybe low carb. And yeah, rarely ketogenic. I, I don't love doing ketogenic diets in women long term, short term therapeutic. Yes, but not seeing the most benefit with, with ketogenic long term. Yeah. So how about physical activity and exercise? What are you seeing in your patients with that? Because most of our patients are not the typical patients. They're people who 
tend to be, you know, already a little bit more on the ball with this kind of thing. So what are you finding is helpful? You know, I use exercise most, you know, or the reason I recommend it in this setting is because it really improves insulin sensitivity, which is thought to be one of the driving factors uh, in at least some cases of, of PCOS. So when patients ask, you know, and there's the other issue, we talked about adrenals, because a lot of patients come in under the impression of, oh, I have some degree of, you know, adrenal dysregulation, therefore I shouldn't exercise. But I, I haven't seen that. And I still think that exercise is really important. You might have to moderate it. It might not be CrossFit five times a week. Um, but even moderate strength training, resistance exercise, I think is well tolerated even with, you know, moderate HPA axis dysregulation and may even improve some of that HPA axis. And so I think doing anything you enjoy and doing exercise to the degree that it leaves you feeling refreshed and better rather than depleted. Mm -hmm. So what, what about diet in terms of, so you said, you know, moderate carb or low carb, but, but what else, anything particular in the diet and from the research or just your experience with PCOS? Well, and then just to clarify, I'm sure all of your listeners know, but of course we're talking about this within a paleo context. So right. grain, grain free and dairy free, um, particularly we said acne is really common in PCOS. And I see that dairy is a really common trigger for mm. acne. So I think dairy has to be out for at least 30 to 60 days strictly before we even consider reintroducing that. And then maybe full fat dairy can fit in there. Mm -hmm. The the other thing that I like is intermittent fasting because, again, it improves insulin sensitivity. It can also improve the lipid profile. But as you mentioned, we do have to look for adrenal dysregulation because intermittent fasting is also a mild form of stress on the body. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's always the devil's in the details, as they say. I've seen some research suggesting higher fiber intake. Um, soluble fiber, you know, uh, non-starch polysaccharides and resistant starches could be helpful here. And that may be due to connection with the gut flora. And it may also be due to the impact it has on insulin levels and blood sugar. We know that fiber intake can actually can significantly affect uh, blood sugar and glucose sensitivity in some people. Yeah. So, which is not, I mean, that's a, Another thing to just keep in mind, because sometimes when people hear low carb, they think, you know, I'm going to, they end up going low fiber too. And that's, that's generally not a good idea, especially with this condition. Yeah, agreed. And I think even if you're doing a low carbohydrate diet, you can still use prebiotic supplements, yeah. which is the other way to get around that. Absolutely. Or, or, you know, some combination. All right. What about supplements or nutrients that have been shown to be depleted or, or you know, beneficial to use with PCOS? Yeah, I think the, the number one nutrient that I would put on top of my wish list if I had to prioritize supplements for a patient would be magnesium. Mm -hmm. um, magnesium, in particular, magnesium glycinate is, is something I recommend for almost all of my patients and certainly any of my you know, female patients with menstrual irregularities. It's, it's difficult to obtain adequate magnesium through diet alone, and it plays such an important role in improving the functions of insulin, leptin, thyroid hormones. It's, it's essential in the production of estrogens and progesterone, and it can also be calming on the nervous system. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something I've, I've talked a lot about because I, it, it is 
If you look at the symptoms of magnesium deficiency, they're the symptoms that are extremely common. And of course, that doesn't mean that, you know, that's correlation and not causation. But you, you and I have both seen how often magnesium alone can make a huge difference for somebody. And it, it makes a big difference too. what type is used and what what, you know, form like just a lot of the magnesium oxides that are typically used in multis or over the counter supplements. It's not very well absorbed and can bring a lot of water into the bowel, which can cause that, you know, loose stools or diarrhea that some people experience from it. And that generally means that it's not really being absorbed very well. So just keep that in mind when you're thinking about magnesium. Vitamin D, there's always a discussion of vitamin D when it comes to hormone regulation and immune function. What about that with PCOS? Yeah, as you mentioned, vitamin D actually more like a hormone than a vitamin and really important in hormonal and also immune balance and immune function. So vitamin D though, I like to check a blood level before starting someone on a vitamin D supplement. So, you know, I feel pretty safe just recommending a magnesium glycinate supplement around maybe 400 milligrams daily with dinner, but vitamin D I want to see a blood level before making a dosing recommendation because this is a fat soluble vitamin. So the levels will potentially build up and accumulate. And there's a pretty wide variety or a wide range in terms of the amount of vitamin D supplement that people need. Absolutely. And, and we both see people. I just had a patient last week who was at 110 and uh, his previous doctor had or I think a book that he had read had, had suggested that everyone should drive their level up to 110, which just yeah. made me so, so angry. <laughs> it's just like, you know, heart disease is the number one killer and high levels of vitamin D cal drop calcium into your arteries and stiffen them and put you at higher risk for heart disease. So that's a really, really bad idea. Uh, and yet that still, that idea is still out there so much. It's like the more is better, more is better thing. Mm -hmm crazy. Yeah, that's true. And if you and if you have a patient who needs to supplement with higher levels of vitamin D or, you know, if someone listening is supplementing with higher levels, maybe more than 5000 IU daily, I'll include vitamin K2 in there as well to help with, you know, getting calcium to the bones rather than depositing in the arteries. Absolutely. The synergy of all the fat soluble vitamins is super important. And we know that taking both vitamin A and K2 in particular raise the toxicity level of vitamin D and the vice versa. So, you know, taking vitamin D and K2 dramatically increases the toxicity threshold of vitamin A. So it's really good to have all those coming in. And that's why we love cod liver oil so much. It's, <laughs> you get both, um, not the K2, but the A and the D. Zinc is another nutrient that has really interesting role in women's health and, you know, both men and women, but I see a lot of zinc deficiency in women. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And again, zinc is one of those nutrients that if someone comes with irregular menstrual cycles, whether it's PCOS or not, I'm probably going to start them on something like at least 30 milligrams of zinc. Again, I might look at a blood level. Um, testing zinc levels isn't quite as straightforward as testing vitamin D levels, which even that isn't all too straightforward. But um, yeah. zinc, zinc is pretty important. It helps with supporting the normal menstrual cycle. And in particular, in the setting of PCOS, zinc plays a really important 
important role in ovarian follicle development. Um, and we said that's one of the primary issues with PCOS is we don't see normal follicle development, and that's how you get production of the egg and ability to, to conceive. Animal products are some of the best sources of zinc. So this is going to be even more common in vegetarians. And the other thing is if women, you know, especially if someone's coming to you with a diagnosis of PCOS, maybe she was put on oral contraceptive pills and then is coming, you know, for a functional medicine take on things, oral contraceptive pills can deplete zinc as well. So that could actually exacerbate the PCOS signs and symptoms. Certainly. I've had some interesting discussions with Chris Masterjohn recently about zinc. And when it comes to nutritional science, he's usually the smartest guy in the room uh, and has done really deep dives with all these nutrients. And he's, he's come around, he's, he's come to the idea that the, uh, for women in particular, that zinc should be, you know, 90 or a hundred for optimal function. And, I regularly see women with zinc in the 50s and 60s. I don't know about you, Amy. And just getting that level up makes a really big difference. And, but it's important to do it the right way, um, not to take a high dose of zinc forever and ever. Just like vitamin D, that can be problematic because zinc suppresses copper and can actually induce a copper deficiency over time. So definitely something to be aware of. And just because your zinc is in the... I'm doing my air quotes now, normal lab reference range doesn't mean you have enough of it. All right. So I'm thinking we should talk about B vitamins. If we're, you know, any discussion about hormones and detoxification of hormones, we need to talk about B vitamins. Yeah. And again, when we do the, the comprehensive blood panel that you and I do with all of our new patients, we get quite a few different markers on that blood panel that give us an idea as to whether or not B vitamins are adequate. And you and I also both often do a urine organic acids test, which gives us even more markers to know whether or not B vitamins are, are sufficient. And so the things that I'm going to look at in particular on the comprehensive blood panel, I'm going to look at the serum levels or the blood levels of B12 and folate. I'm also going to look at homocysteine, methylmalonic acid, and MCV or mean corpuscular volume, which is the size of the red blood cell. So if any of these markers are off, I'm going to think about using active forms of B12 or folate. And I might use just a, a B complex vitamin because we know that we need these B vitamins for our detoxification process. This is somewhat dependent on something called, you know, methylation, which you and I have, have done a podcast mm -hmm. on before, yeah. but we need to make sure that the body is normally, you know, clearing these, these hormones out as well. Absolutely. So we've talked about diet and exercise as being crucial. We talked about addressing all of these other root cause mechanisms. And then we've talked about nutrients like zinc and magnesium, vitamin D, B vitamins. So what about specific, you know, botanicals or nutrients, nutraceuticals that are targeted more towards altering hormone balance? Sometimes when we address all those other things that we just talked about, everything, you know, you get 100% improvement. Other times there's still some lingering dysfunction or imbalance that we need to address. So what, what then? Yeah. Inositol is actually one of my favorite supplements to use in a PCOS 
patient. And I'll even start a woman on inositol while we're working on all of these other pieces. So if we know that she has, you know, basically we're sort of working under the diagnosis of PCOS. Again, we said sort of questionable utility to, to make this diagnosis, but inositol is, it's a chemical compound in the body. It, it looks a little bit like glucose. There are slightly, there are several different forms of inositol. The two most common are called myo-inositol and de-chiro-inositol. Myo-inositol is the predominant form of inositol in our bodies. And there's actually been some review articles that were published recently, one published in 2016 that looked just at randomized controlled trials of myo-inositol and de-chiro-inositol. And it showed that myo-inositol alone helps to improve insulin sensitivity and also supports normal follicle development. So it seems to address both the sex hormone imbalance to some extent and also improve the insulin sensitivity. So two of the primary drivers in PCOS. The role of dechiroinositol is a little bit more controversial, but again, some of these studies looking at these review articles suggest that myoinositol and dechiroinositol in a physiological ratio of about 40 to one may more quickly restore the normal hormonal and metabolic parameters, at least in, in overweight women with that diagnosis of PCOS. Yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of women benefit from that. And I, this actually highlights an important point too. We talk in functional medicine about the important address, importance of addressing the root cause. And that's definitely true. But if we think of this as like a tree with roots and then a trunk and branches. Yes, we want to be looking at the roots and ultimately ad addressing those roots because that's the best way to, to create you know, lasting change. But that doesn't mean we can't also address the branches. And the more troublesome the symptoms are and the more they interfere with the patient's life, the more necessary it is to sometimes give the patient some immediate relief with something like this because I mean, just to, in, in some cases, the symptoms can be so challenging that they actually themselves can become an underlying cause or, or contribute to an underlying cause. So, for example, if someone is in so much pain or um, they're so inflamed that they're not able to sleep, then that sleep deprivation, you know, becomes an underlying cause in itself that perpetuates the condition. And so in that situation, using something that can reduce the pain and inflammation and help the patient sleep, even though those are kind of symptomatic interventions, is actually useful and part of the, the whole framework of functional medicine. Yeah. And, and inositol, I mean, again, because we think that two of the potential underlying factors driving PCOS are the sex hormone imbalance and the insulin resistance, you know, here is something that is potentially correcting or restoring both of those parameters. So. Right. Yeah, so there's always uh, different approaches to use depending on where the patient is and, and what they need most. And then, of course, there are other things, you know, that, that depend more on the specific mechanism. So I know, you know, we, we, we sometimes will use berberine or other botanicals that can have an effect on blood sugar. Yeah, berberine's another good one because it does improve insulin sensitivity. It, it 
upregulates insulin receptors and stimulates glucose uptake into the cells and might also improve acne, which is another really common, you know, complaint in, in PCOS. But with berberine, I do have some caution in using it long term because it has antimicrobial properties. Yeah. So we really want to think about the pros and cons in terms of using berberine long term. And, and we may decide that there's value to using it to improve the insulin sensitivity and blood sugar levels, but we need to know, or at least be very conscientious about supplementing them with prebiotics, probiotics, and really supporting gut health otherwise. Definitely. You know, in a from a Chinese medicine perspective, we often, you know, we, we wouldn't use herbs like berberine for just indefinitely over a long period of time. Um, they're more in the category of therapeutic use, mm -hmm. um, but they can still be useful in that, in that way. So, you know, sometimes getting the blood sugar into a normal range while the patient's making those other adjustments to diet and lifestyle. And then once they've made those adjustments successfully, you can withdraw the berberine or whatever it is and they can still stay there. So that, you know, right. that's kind of that root branch thing that we were talking about. What about pharmaceuticals? Any that you think play a role here in some cases? Yeah, metformin is a prescription medication that improves insulin sensitivity, and it's most commonly used in diabetic patients, but it's also pretty commonly prescribed to, to women with PCOS to improve the insulin sensitivity. And, you know, I think that this is actually a, a pretty effective medication, and some women tolerate it really well, and it will do the job of improving insulin sensitivity. So, you know, I'll occasionally use metformin with some of my patients. The caution I have around this one is, number one, it will deplete B vit uh, B12, vitamin B12. So I'm going to make sure all of my patients are supplement. Anyone on metformin should be supplementing with active forms of B12. So methylcobalamin, hydroxycobalamin. And the other thing is metformin is associated with G most commonly gastrointestinal side effects. So I'll sometimes see nausea, gastrointestinal discomfort, abdominal pain or bloating. So, you know, it doesn't always work for patients. And, you know, you and I also have the practice where a lot of patients come saying, no, I don't want to use prescription medications. So mm -hmm. I would say most of my patients don't want to take metformin, mm -hmm. but I think it is a pretty good option, especially when we're starting to get around that pre-diabetic level. Yeah. I mean, some drugs are better than others and, and some drugs actually do seem to have uh, more of a, of a relationship with the core mechanisms, you know, actually addressing some of the root mechanisms like we've talked about low dose naltrexone in that context and metformin is an interesting medication i mean it's shown you know not to have a lot of interesting effects on insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance it's being studied right now for cancer you know we talked a little bit about the metabolic theory of cancer on my podcast and i think that's still the jury's still out and there's some controversy there but there's some studies that suggest that metformin may slow the growth of certain cancers because it, it limits the availability of glucose to those cancers. So um, definitely interesting and, and may be worth consideration if all else fails. The difference is you are going to do, every, you know, in most cases, everything else before you go there, whereas in the conventional approach, that might be the first step rather than exploring all these other things. 
Yeah, I think in in a conventional setting, you'll probably get a prescription for oral contraceptive pills and metformin. Yeah, that's the basic standard practice there. So, Amy, I know your practice has been mostly full for the the past year. Uh, Actually, for for a couple of years, it's been pretty full since we, you know, uh, shortly after you started. And the good news is lately we have made some changes at CCFM where we have brought in a nurse practitioner, Tracy, who's fantastic, and also a health coach, Danielle, who's also fantastic. And that has expanded our capacity and our ability to serve more patients because we have that additional layer of support now uh, where patients can get, you know, have appointments with either Tracy or Danielle in between appointments with us. And they just are able to get their questions answered even more promptly and and just have that added layer of support. So now, given that, you have a few openings in your practice again, which is fantastic. And tell tell us who, you know, what kind of patients you're working with these days and where your interests are and, you know, how that's evolved for you over these last three years. Yeah, I, I feel like our practice does tend to draw sort of the more complex patients, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have a, a typical patient per se. We do get a lot of patients who come um, having been sick for quite a while, maybe having seen 15 or 20 other physicians and, and being told it's all in their head, which is always heartbreaking when yeah. you hear that story. So, you know, I generally do a, a functional medicine, general functional medicine approach and work a lot with gastrointestinal issues, um, autoimmune diseases, allergies, do a lot with hormones, also bioidentical hormone replacement therapy when appropriate. More recently have gotten into working with cognitive decline or mild mm-hmm. cognitive impairment along the, you know, Bredesen protocol. protocol yeah. Uh-huh heavy metal detoxification or more general detoxification and working with mold related illness. These are all things that I have been focusing on the past couple of years. Something that's been really great too, as uh, you know, we've seen the CCFM grow. We now have five clinicians, Sanja, Dr. Schwag and myself as the co-directors and then you, and then the latest additions have been uh, Dr. Ramsey Asfour, who is an infectious disease doctor who worked for the WHO for many years and, you know, traveling, living in different places around the world, treating infectious disease. It's been so incredible to have him on staff and, and, you know, to be able to learn from him and and his deep experience with infectious disease. And then Tracy Clow or Tracy O'Shea, I should say, she just got married and changed her name. She's a nurse practitioner that's IFM certified and has has worked in pain clinics and has, you know, is a a phenomenal practitioner and resource. And what I'm particularly enjoying is that we, with Slack, get to talk, you know, and, and share and communicate and learn from each other all day. So we have this kind of multiplier effect where if someone comes to see one of us, they're actually in some way getting the shared experience of five different clinicians. Yeah, it's been great getting everyone's input. And and in particular, because I mean, you and I will often get to, you know, as we talk about functional medicine, peeling the layers of the onion, you know, we'll end up running into to chronic infection, chronic viral infection, tick-borne yeah. illness. And I, you know, Lyme disease is its own specialty. And mm-hmm. it's great having Dr. Schwag, Dr. Osfor, um, to 
to help manage these really complex cases. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think we've developed a really interesting format where we have this kind of model of, you know, it's like a collaborative model where we're all sharing and learning from each other. And, and, you know, when you have a question, you come to me or Dr. Schwag and we have a question, we come, you know, we all help each other out. We all have different backgrounds. Like it's been amazing to have your radiology expertise because that often comes up, you know, patients will bring in scans or they'll, we'll have a question about what the right diagnostic approaches for that and we can ask you and when it's more on the infectious disease spectrum dr schwag and dr osfor and you know in the nutritional realm and you know lipids and all of the things that i have gone down the rabbit holes for i'm happy always happy to share and so it's i'm, I'm really i think it's a unique um, model that we have i don't see this at a lot of other clinics and I'm, I'm really happy with how that's continuing to unfold as we add additional practitioners and continue to grow all right so anything else amy before we finish this up i think we covered it all great well it's been great to have you on the show again and for those folks who are looking for additional help and would like to work with amy dr Nett. Um, you can head over to ccfmed, that's ccfmed.com. And then when you get there, you can click on patients and then click on working with Chris Kresser and, and Amy Nett. And then you get all the information you need about how to apply to become a patient. And, you know, wherever your path takes you, I, I wish you well and hope that you continue to cultivate vibrant health and and wellness. All right. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today, Chris. Been a pleasure. All right. So I know we've been doing a couple interviews recently, but uh, continue to send in your questions at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. I will be returning to Q&A format shortly. I'd like to mix it up. Keeps it interesting. And again, uh, take care, everybody, and we'll talk to you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.